The debate between merchants and banking institutions over who bears more responsibility for ever-increasing counterfeit card fraud has become more fierce. In the wake of big-box merchant breaches, such as Target and Home Depot, finger-pointing and requests for more involvement from Congress have cropped up on both sides of the debate. How merchants and banking institutions can work together in 2015 to combat card fraud is now an increasing focus for retail groups. Ultimately, these groups say they want to work with card issuers to thwart fraud. But until both factions can sit down together, fighting card fraud will continue to be an uphill battle. Here, Mark Horwittle, CEO of the Merchant Advisory Group, offers some perspective from the retail side of the debate and explains why MAG and other retail groups feel banking institutions and banking associations have not fairly depicted the significant role merchants have and continue to play in the fight against fraud. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So, Mark, as I noted, there has been quite a bit of back and forth between merchants and banking institutions about how payments transactions should be and are being secured. Most recently, MAG and other retail groups responded on December 29th to some claims made by the Independent Community Bankers of America about the cost community banks have paid to recover from the Home Depot breach. Why do merchant groups disagree with some of the claims that are being made by these banking groups and associations? Well, I think that the banks and the card networks, to a certain extent, have uh, done their best to try to convince the public that these breaches are all about the merchant community, when in fact, you know, the cards themselves, the credentials are out there in the, in the clear for anyone to, frankly, steal. I mean, the card number is printed on the embossed, as we call it, on the front of the uh, card itself. The card number is uh, also appears in the magnetic stripe in the clear. The card itself is highly susceptible to fraud. You know, that's a product of the banks and the bank networks. But the merchant community has every interest in keeping its customers safe and protecting its reputation, and probably reputational risk is the biggest concern we have with the counterfeit and lost and stolen fraud that's occurring in this space. But I just want to point out at the outset that the card itself is basically unsafe because the credentials are out there in the clear for anyone to steal and, in fact, use if you don't have a pin. So let's talk a little bit about the card technology itself, Mark. Retailers have been insistent that if we're going to have chip technology, chip cards here in the U.S., that we really should deploy those chip cards with the ability to conduct the transactions with pin technology. Why are retailers so set on using the pin with the chip? Well, allegedly, a lot of the counterfeit fraud that occurs today is uh, the cost is borne by the issuers, while the lost and stolen fraud we know uh, is uh, shared at least to the same extent that issuers bear it with the merchant community. Without a, a PIN requirement, uh, there really is nothing to stop lost and stolen card fraud. And everywhere else in the world in which... Um, EMV or chip cards have been deployed have either started out with PIN or have migrated to PIN. And frankly, Visa and MasterCard in some countries like Australia and New Zealand are huge advocates of PIN. What they say in the U.S. is that the consumers in the U.S. aren't capable of learning a new PIN, while at the same time those very banks that issue the credit cards require PINs when their money at stake on their own ATMs. So uh, with the exception of small dollar value transactions, which I think the merchants could agree with the issuers on, you don't need a signature and you don't need a PIN, we believe PIN should be required every purchase because it clearly protects against fraud and chips without PINs is a really halfway measure. And merchants are being asked to fund the bulk of this transition and in not getting probably the one thing that would provide some degree of merchant payback 
which is pins on the cards. And now, Mark, I know that you can't speak for banking associations, but from your perspective, what has been the argument against using chip and pin on the banking side? Well, the argument is that customers are not accustomed to entering pins all the time at the merchant point of sale uh, and would have a hard time remembering a pin if they were required to use one at the merchant point of sale. Frankly, I think the reality is, in many cases, particularly the larger issuers, their credit card systems were developed in the 60s, and they don't have the capability of handling pins on credit cards and signature debit cards, which also use the credit card system. They did build new systems back in the 80s to deal with uh, ATMs, and uh, those do require pins and are capable of processing pins, but their old credit card systems just don't have that capability, and they don't want to build it. There's been a lot of discussion coming from both sides of the house, really, when I say both sides of the house, I mean retailers and banking institutions, about the need for EMV coupled with tokenization. What's your perspective on the role tokenization plays in securing card transactions? I think tokenization itself is an excellent technology for protecting card information when it's moving from the merchant through the various processors and the networks and out to the financial institutions. I think uh, tokenization is already being deployed by many merchants and it's being provided by their merchant processors. And so it's, it's something that many merchants are already using. I spoke to one of our major airline members of the MAG recently and they've been using it for years internally and externally. So, you know, we are proponents of tokenization. However, we are not proponents of having tokenization exclusively in the hands of the card brands because we know that always leads to a lack of competition and the merchant bearing all the costs, nor are we in favor of tokenization if it's not done end-to-end, meaning the bank has to participate and issue the token. Otherwise, if we do tokenization along the lines that uh, the card brands are suggesting we do it today where they perform the actual token vault service, it's not being issued by the bank and the last leg of the transaction uh, as it moves from the card brand and out to the bank is done in the clear without being tokenized. This is an interesting discussion, Mark, because there have been quite a few areas of, that have been discussed here when it comes to tokenization. And one of the things that's come up in that discussion is that the way tokenization is handled right now, and if when I say the way it's handled, I'm basically talking about this specification that came out from EMV Co. for tokenization, and this, of course, is what's been adopted by Apple Pay. But on the merchant side, that particular specification doesn't necessarily meet the needs of merchants. Can you help us understand why? Well, it's not so much that there's anything particularly problematic about the specification. The problem is it's the intellectual property of the owners of EMV Co., you know, Visa and MasterCard and American Express and JCB, uh, China Union Pay. It's not an international standard. Uh, Tokenization uh, is needed, frankly, for not only payment transactions, but for a lot of other use cases. And we really think tokenization should be a standard and should be in the hands of a standards organization like ISO or in the United States, ISO's International Standards Organization in the United States, uh, it's uh, American National Standards Institute. So it's not just being controlled by the owners of of EMVCO that everybody can weigh in and everybody has a vote and has a say and, you know, nobody's paying tribute to a handful of uh, interests that control that technology today and would do so going forward as well. From what you've seen, Mark, has there been any kind of response to this request from the merchant community to have a standards body, a separate standards body, an international standards body, look at tokenization? 
Well, I think the standards organization that I just referenced is largely interested in uh, dealing with the subject matter and working, and they already are working on this, but real standards are voluntary. Organizations have to volunteer their time to participate, uh, have to be willing to give and take in order to reach a consensus, and if, you know, the card networks and EMVCO choose to stay outside that, then we're not going to have a real standard coming from them. So let's go back, Mark, just for a moment and talk about the EMV-compliant payment terminals themselves. Are retailers deploying these in the market right now, these types of devices that can accept both chip and pen? Yes, have been for quite some time. MAG represents roughly 85 of the largest merchants in the, in the U.S. Most of uh, the members of the MAG have been phasing in EMV terminals and phasing out the old Mike's MAG stripe only devices for years, and most of them will be ready by the date of the uh, liability shift in October of this year. And again, I've mentioned as I did before that this constitutes the vast bulk of the cost associated with moving this market to EMV is the merchant cost of deploying these terminals and the systems behind them to process. EMV transactions. You noted that most of the largest U.S. merchants will be compliant by the October 2015 liability shift date, but what about smaller merchants? Do you anticipate that smaller merchants will be able to make this migration as well, or are they even interested in making the migration? There's really two parts to that question. Can they do it? Yes. And the small merchants, frankly, don't have the systems internally that support those terminals. They buy that capability usually from a third-party processor. So many of the prominent third-party processors that the big merchants use also service the small merchants, often through middlemen. And frankly, uh, they can simply ship out a new EMV-capable device to a small merchant and replace the existing MagStripe device. It's not difficult for them to do that. Now, the question is, will they do that? And small merchants pay the highest prices per transaction today in the world for credit card and debit card acceptance in the United States. So, you know, when they're asked to spend more money on anything to do with what they consider to be an overpriced system already, they're reluctant to do so. It's the sort of the middle-sized merchants, the ones that have not own the terminals and also have their own systems that are going to be the ones who have the toughest chore here because many of the, the big merchants, the MAG members, have experienced DMV in international markets and can leverage what they've done to support EMV in those markets, but the mid-sized merchants that might be just U.S., domestic only, uh, have the biggest burden of all and will probably lag more than even the smaller merchants. Mark, can you give us any idea about where we are as far as the number of EMV-compliant point-of-sale terminals in the U.S. today? If I had to guess, I would say 15 20%. And then by the time we get to the end of the year in October, where would you say we would be? I don't think we'll be too much further along. I think we might be in the 20 25% range. Again, I, the fact is that most of those large merchants that I would suggest are responsible for the current deployment, they've already deployed and they will remain so in October of 15. But I think the small and mid-sized merchant community will lag significantly. One of the things that's been discussed quite a bit is that retailers oftentimes feel that they're being put on the spot and that they are the ones who are less secure than banking institutions. But the retailers are quick to point out that banks oftentimes suffer breaches that are more significant than those suffered by retailers. Do you feel that banks in some ways are less secure than retailers? I don't think that they're any less secure. I think they're just as vulnerable as are 
retailers. And the networks, the bank networks, have done an excellent job of convincing the public and, frankly, uh, the politicians that this is primarily a merchant problem. And it's not. The fact is, these cards have the credentials embossed and emboldened on the front of the card and in the clear on the mag stripe. So the devices themselves are prone to counterfeiting and fraudulent use. Mark, let's go back to something else that you mentioned earlier in the call as well that relates to the role that, that retailers play and that retailers actually are spending quite a bit of money to help banking institutions, quite frankly, recover from some of the fraud losses. When it comes to the way retailers compensate banks, it, it's not really a direct compensation. Can you help us understand how the retailers are paying for fraud losses before they actually happen? Sure. I mean, to begin with, the card networks have established an organization uh, somewhat like EMVCO, I think the same set of owner members, which are the networks. And the networks, frankly, are protective of the interest of the bank issuers and not the merchant. That organization is called PCI. And PCI really focuses its standards, if you, I mean, I'm hesitant to call it standards because I, again, reserve that term for organizations like ISO and ANSI, but there are rules that apply to merchants. Merchants spend a tremendous amount of money more than either the merchant or the bank community spend on fraud itself in protecting the ecosystem against card fraud because of the PCI standard and the rules and enforcement process that the card brands have in place to hold merchants accountable for that. That's a huge cost that merchants bear, that the banks do not bear at all. Then there's the chargeback process, uh, which is uh, a means by which if a fraud occurs, and I referenced lost and stolen fraud, which or friendly fraud, uh, you know, all forms that can lead to chargebacks by the issuers to the merchant community if the consumer disputes the charges, and the merchants bear that cost as well. That's a cost that could be mitigated significantly if pins were required on every transaction. And then there are fines uh, that the card networks impose to the merchants that uh, assist in the revenue that they generate to not only um, you know help the card networks fund their fraud-fighting efforts, but also repay the banks for the losses associated with card fraud. What about breach notification? This has also been an argument that the banking institutions have made, I guess, in favor of some kind of breach legislation that would hold retailers more accountable for noting the public in a more timely way once a breach occurs. One of the areas that banking institutions have pointed to is the fact that they must comply with the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. But retailers say that GLBA is not a model for data security. Why? Well, GLB hasn't really helped so far with you know, some of the bank breaches that uh, have been noted you know, in the public domain. I think that it would be uh, worthwhile to investigate you know, processes which would lead to better disclosure and better information sharing as well between merchants and, and banks to not only keep the public aware so that the public can take steps to mitigate their damages, but also to uh, you know to fight future fraud. But I don't think we've seen serious progress on that today. The banks and the networks have been loath to even share adequate statistical information on you know where fraud occurs and how it occurs. So uh, there's been an absence of information out there for quite some time, largely due to the fact that the banks and the networks don't release that data. And they're the only ones that really possess all that data. Do you see improvements being made in 2015, or does more need to happen before we can get there? 
I think the progress will occur, but I think it'll be very slow. I mean, merchants uh, in the United States harbor tremendous suspicion of the networks and the banks. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we pay the highest fees in the world here in the United States from the merchant side, and the rules are typically made in favor of the issuers and against the merchant community's interest. And so we're accustomed to, to dealing with less than a full deck. And I think that uh, there's been plenty of lip service given to the need for cooperation, but it'll be interesting to see if it really occurs. One of the big corollary issues, I guess, to all this right now is and what we talk about in the payments business is big data. I think everyone concedes that more information sharing, even on individual transactions, might be useful in uh, fighting fraud and predicting fraud and doing a better job of approving or denying transactions. But the merchant community is concerned that if that data is provided or required by the networks or the banks, that you know, it won't be used exclusively to fight fraud. It'll be used to market their services and perhaps even to sell information to from one merchant to another merchant competitor. The business is frankly fraught with animosity between the banks and the merchants were plagued with that. And it'll be difficult to get much done cooperatively going forward, I'm afraid. Mark, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. Thank you. appreciate the opportunity. Again, we've just heard from Mark Horwittle of MAG. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.